Get your Bibles now. Everybody get your Bible. Everybody get your Bible. Everybody needs one. Dad needs one. Mom needs one. All God's children need a Bible. And uh, let's go to Psalm number 77. Psalm number 77. We're going to break into the midst of the thinking and speaking of the psalmist as he asks six questions, six questions in a row, questions that perhaps you and I have thought, maybe have even asked in recent days. The psalmist said in Psalm number 77 and verse number 7, Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Now, I don't know about you, but I just like the wording of that question right there. It's sort of how they talk where I grew up, just clean gone forever. I like that. That's how we learn to talk, reading the Bible. Verse number 8. Doth his promise fail forevermore? Verse number nine, question five. Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. Now think of that. That's what the word means. Verse number 10. And I said, this is my infirmity. This is my weakness. This is my sickness. This is my infirmity. But I, re, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer tonight asking you to speak to our hearts through your word. Lord, as I have studied this afternoon, as I have pondered the words of this chapter, I believe they are very fitting for this very hour, 6.30, Sunday evening, April 5th, 2020. As our world faces a pandemic, as there is fear on a level like we've never seen before, as we look toward heaven and we wonder, Lord, what are you doing have you forgot us? Is this the end? I thank you for the word of God that calms our fears. I thank you for the word of God, Lord, that gets a hold of our anxieties and brings them within the corral of faith to say, everything's all right in my Father's house. Help me as I preach your precious word tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I had the privilege to grow up in a very good home. In fact, I believe the home I grew up in, my two brothers and I, I'm the oldest of three. I'm the oldest, I'm the best looking, and I don't have time to give you all the rest. And since I guess I have the microphone, <laughs> but anyway. I grew up in what I believe was the very best home three boys could grow up in. Our dad was a hard-working father, our mom was a God-fearing mother, and they did their very best to provide for us and to care for us. They provided everything that we needed. Now, I didn't know until I was grown that we grew up poor. And, of course, we weren't poor, as one of my friends says. We weren't poor. We just didn't have any money. I thought everybody grew up like we did, and life was sort of like that all over the world. But... As I look back, I realize there couldn't have been a better home for three boys to grow up in. Mom and dad loved each other. 
Mom and Dad loved us. They took us to church every service. They took us to Sunday school. They took us Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. We went to vacation Bible school in the summer. We went to every revival meeting. We went to every conference. Our dad was a pastor from 1972 until his death in 1985. What a wonderful life it was. Another thing I'll say about my parents is they were strong disciplinarians. Whatever they said, that's just the way it was. They did not need to explain. They did not need to apologize. And to the best of their ability, they not only taught us the Word of God, they enforced the Word of God in our lives. When I was a child, a young child, before my dad started going to church, my, uh, my dad had been saved, but backslidden, got a job in Dayton, and was spending his time working and uh, building and living the American dream. And thank God for a Baptist preacher that loved my dad enough to keep visiting him until he got him in church. And dad gave his life to serve the Lord from that time forward. But I remember when my mom took me to church, my mom not only took me, she took three things always. She took her Bible, she took her purse, and she took a switch. Now that was back in the days before uh, they thought uh, whippings were child abuse and all of that, and maybe that's why my personality is warped is my mother's fault. But if I didn't behave in church and it came to a certain point that all threats had failed, there was a row of oak trees. Let's see, they were about, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, and my mom would take me out there and she'd take that switch and boy, she would straighten me out. I'd come back in and I would sit there and my legs would be stinging from a whipping she gave me. And she didn't have to do that very often, but she did it enough for me to remember. My dad also was a strict disciplinarian. What my dad said, that was the rule. That's how we lived. We didn't discuss it, let alone... Uh, argue about it. Whatever dad said, that's just, that's just what we did. I remember times that I had uh, broken a rule or disappointed my dad and came to a place of discipline. My dad would say, son, uh, go to my room. He wouldn't say go to your room. He would say go to his room. Now, uh, their bedroom was a place that uh, we didn't, I didn't, I didn't enjoy going. The only thing I knew about it, that's where dad gave me whippings, and so I didn't want to go there. But uh, I remember uh, shining my dad's shoes and sitting them outside his bedroom door on Saturday night. But when I was in trouble, he would say, son, go to my room. And I would go in, I would sit down on his bed, and the honest truth, I'd pray for the Lord to send Jesus. I'd say, Lord, it'd be a great time for the rapture before my dad kills me. Uh, it'd be a good time for me to uh, come to heaven right now. And of course, the Lord never answered that prayer, and my dad would come and judgment would come. My dad would present the problem. In fact, uh, the whipping uh, wasn't as bad as him saying, I'm disappointed in you, or my, I'm surprised. And, and that, that would hurt me because I didn't want to disappoint my father. He would tell me he was disappointed, and then he would say, Now, son, I don't want to give you a whipping, and uh, I don't want to. But he said, If you don't learn that there's a price to pay for wrongdoing, then your wrongs will increase, and there'll come a day that someone will have no mercy and they'll not have judgment on you. And uh, he said, if I teach you to obey what's right and to obey authority as a child, as a teenager, then he said, I won't have to worry about you as much when you grow up. And certainly he did. And I remember my dad taking out that belt. I remember as it popped through the, every loop in his pants. And then he would begin to give me a whipping. 
I wish my dad would have left after he gave me a whipping, but he wouldn't. He would sit down on the bed, and I would squirm, of course, and wait for the pain to ease, and then my dad would talk to me again. Sometimes, in addition to giving me a whipping, he would say, Now, son, I'm also going to have to ground you for a week. And uh, he would say something like, No basketball for a week. Now, no basketball for a week for me seemed like an eternity. We had a basketball goal outside, and every waking moment, every free hour, uh, that's what we did. And I enjoyed playing basketball. He would ground me in some way. I would sometimes lose a privilege. And the honest truth is there were some times I did not understand what my dad was doing. I really didn't agree with his punishment, and I didn't agree with his uh, grounding me or taking a privilege away. I appreciated the fact that he loved me. I appreciated the fact that he provided for me. I don't ever remember a time that my dad said, I'm sorry, we don't have any food to eat. We don't have any water to drink. I, I, I never remember that. I always had uh, proper clothes to wear to school and to church, always had food to eat, always had a fun, enjoyed life. But when it came to discipline, there were times I didn't understand. And I would ponder and I would wonder, what in the world is dad doing? And that's what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying, Lord, what, what, what are you doing here? I don't understand why this punishment in my life. I don't understand what you're trying to do in my life. You see, in this passage of Scripture, God was punishing Judah for their sin. In fact, the whole nation was being punished and they would soon lose their sovereignty as a nation because of their sin. And it was a very sad day. The psalmist was sad and he went from sad to almost disrespect or almost an irreverence it seems to me. In fact, I don't think I would have ever verbalized out loud these questions to my dad. But the psalmist, he verbalizes the question and in his weeping and I can't tell if he is sad or if he is angry or maybe a mixture of both and maybe confused and he begins to ask why and ask what is going on. I get a little concerned for the psalmist because he says out loud some things that I may think but would not want to say out loud. God does not respond to him for a while. In fact, the psalmist, don't miss this, the psalmist is forced to think about the circumstances around him. He's also forced to think about the questions that he has asked God as to why God is punishing Judah for their wrong. He is forced to think in silence for a while, waiting for God's answer. He asked these six questions that we read a while ago as recorded in verses 7 and 8. And he says in words something like, God, have you changed? Uh, God, have you gotten touchy? God, are you fickle? His questions would seem irreverent to us. And he was wondering what was going on. In addition to that, the devil using the difficulty is trying to torment the psalmist and he lies to him and he tells the psalmist you don't have a God that loves you you don't have a God that cares about you and it adds to his doubt it adds to his confusion 
I read a story some time ago, I believe it was a couple of years ago, and according to the notes I have here, a boy told the story of how their house was set up and they had a living room and a parlor and the living room was only used for Sundays or for when company would come. He said it was a special room. It wasn't a room to play in, but every Sunday that's where his mom would put uh, the dinner and they would eat there. And if they would have company to come, that's where they would meet and they would sit in that living room, that, that parlor room there, and they would fellowship with the family. The doors were always open. They could always see it, but it wasn't a place that they played or frequented during the week. It was just set aside for the Sunday. He said one Saturday and Sunday, he noticed that the doors to the parlor were closed. He said, I wanted to go in, just a, just a, little, just a little boy, four or five years old. And he said, uh, his parents said, no, you don't, you don't need to go into the parlor. He said, it was a complete mystery to me. I didn't know what was going on in that room. And I noticed that there would be friends and family and neighbors that would come and they would go in that room, but every time I started to go in, I, my parents would say, you just, you just play in your room or you just stay out here. You don't need to go into the parlor. He said a year or so later as I got older, and of course he said I found out just a few days later that my grandfather had died. And I learned a little while later that they had brought his body as was the custom of that day to the home and that's where the family visited rather than going to the funeral home. I grew up in southeast Kentucky and my grandparents did the same. We either brought them to their home or to the church and there was a, a time of what we called a wake or a time of fellowship of family. He said, but because I was a little boy and not able to understand death and understand all that was going on, my parents saw it was best that I did not go in and see my grandfather in the casket. Later I saw pictures and I understood, and I understood at a time of maturity. That's an example of what's going on in this psalm here. You see, there are some things that God in His goodness, don't miss this, doesn't explain to us. And like the psalmist, we despairingly ask God again and again what's going on, but God doesn't answer. He seems to just put us off. He knows that time will reveal everything, and if not time, but eternity will tell. And that's the way it is in our day, and we're hungry to figure out, and we'll go from news channel to news channel and talk to this person and that person. But as I've tried to approach what's going on in prayer and in the Word of God, God, what are you doing in my heart? What are you doing in our church? What are you doing in my family? What are you doing in our city? What are you doing in our state? It seems that there's been a lot of silence, and you've heard me say this in the last few sermons. I've spent more time in God's presence being quiet than I've spent time talking to God in what I call prayer, and sometimes our prayers are suggestions rather than just waiting for God to reveal what he's doing. I want you to notice a few comments from the psalm. And I, 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 I want to point out he's in a time of trouble and a trial in his life. He is questioning God. He's wondering what's going on. And he says, Lord, are you going to cast us off forever? Have you forgotten us? Is this the end of time? 
Will you be favorable again to our nation of Judah? We look at our nation tonight and wonder, God, are you going to bless us again, or is this the end of our nation? Is his mercy clean, gone forever? Will our churches open? Will the gospel be preached again to crowds of people? Are his promises now ended? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Has God brought judgment and the time of his return is near? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Is God mad at America and not listening to our prayers? The psalmist calls out in a time of destruction of Judah by a powerful army, the army of the Babylonians, and there is pain and there is separation, there is confusion, there is death. And in another passage of Scripture, in a confused time, the psalmist said, are you going to use a nation that's more wicked than we are to destroy our nation? The psalmist is confused. He doesn't know he doesn't know what's going on. The marketplace that was busy is now quiet. The streets that once were filled with traffic are safe to walk on. The builders, the buildings that were under construction, they sit as if time has come to an end. The courtroom is busy hour after hour, case after case is quiet. And there's no debate. The psalmist waits. If you studied all of this psalm, you would find this time of waiting. You would time, find the time that the psalmist says to God, what are you doing? And there's no answer. And he is forced to wait in his silence. And in God's silence, and in the psalmist's time of pondering, he comes to a powerful thought. He comes to a powerful conclusion in his life. And he says in verse number 10, understand it's a time of punishment. But in verse number 10, he says, But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now what does that mean? There are many references to the right hand of God in the Bible. There's sometimes it just says the hand of God, and there are times that the Bible references the right hand of God. When it says the right hand, it refers to his dominant hand. It refers to a hand of strength or a hand of care, or a hand of comfort that can comfort when nothing else will. It is referring to the leading hand of God. It is referring to the hand of omnipotence. It is referring to the hand of power. It is referring to the hand of prominence. It is referring to the hand of the King of kings and Lord of lords that just with his hand can beckon an army to the battlefield, that just with his hand can silence a crowd that just with his hand can create a world that just with his hand can bring calm and comfort and care and as he looked at the punishment as he felt the pain that was going on around him as the Babylonian army was coming in to defeat Judah because of their sin he said Lord do you see what's going on Lord have you forgotten us Lord are your years of mercy gone Lord have you 
your promises expired. Is this the end of time? All of a sudden he stops. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember now God's been mighty good to us and he says, in time of punishment, I am not going to forget the hand of provision. In the time of punishment, I'm not going to forget the hand of love. In the time of punishment, I'm not going to forget the hand of compassion as my father would bring me to a place of discipline. The same hand that loved me. The same hand that touched a fevered brow. The same hand that gave me a grip of comfort in a time of fear. The same hand that had worked uh, to provide and put food on the table and clothes on my back and a shelter over me. That same hand took me and said, son, I have to punish you for your wrong. And the psalmist was saying, I just about in our time of punishment forgot that that hand that's punishing me is the same hand that blessed me. And in this passage he says, I'll not let the devil cause me to forget God's goodness in this time of difficulty. And so in this message, I say tonight, as you and I face difficulty, as we have concern about businesses, as we have concern about finances, as we have concern about sickness, and we look at God and say, Hey God, do you recognize that over a million people uh, have uh, this uh, virus that is new to us, at least by name? Uh, Lord, do you see what's happening in this city and that city? And God doesn't answer. We stop just for a minute and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's been mighty good to America. And the hand that has provided has the right to correct. And I'm going to remember the hand of God, the right hand that provided for me. Let me give you another illustration to help you understand what I'm saying. Job, in a time of difficulty and trial of his faith. Three of his friends so-called came and they said, Job, we know what the problem is. You've sinned secretly and God is judging you. In this particular passage of Scripture, Job's wife comes to him and she tells him, Job, why don't you just die? Why don't you just curse God and die? You would be better dead than you are living in this situation. I take us to the sight of where Job is. He is now covered with boils from head to toe. The Bible says he took him a potsherd. It's a piece of broken metal to scrape himself with all. And he sat among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain that integrity Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Job later said, Though he slay me, Yet will I trust in Him. The purpose of my preaching tonight is to say, don't get impatient with God. Don't get angry at God. 
put all of this into perspective by saying, I want to remind you how good God has been to us. God's blessed your business. God's blessed your family. God's provided for you. We have all that we need and more. We have luxury. We sell things in yard sales that folks in our world would love to have as their first possession. We give things away. We're so blessed. Don't in a time of difficulty, don't in a time when we don't understand what God's doing, put God on the judgment seat and say, God, you're not fair. God, you're not just. I want to remind you of the days of God's good right hand that provided for us when we were in our sin, lost and undone, God gave his son to down the cross of Calvary to pay for our sin. I'm concerned tonight that our patience with God working in our lives is often so weak that we miss the goodness of God and the purpose of God working in our life. I fear that we question God's love too quick. I fear that we ask the same questions that the psalmist asked and we forget the goodness of God too quick. The Bible says in the book of James chapter 5, listen to these words. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. You know what what James is saying? Be patient with God. The same hand that's bringing discipline is the same hand that provided. Don't judge God. Don't lose faith in God. Don't be angry at God. The truth is if each of us were required to list all of the good things that God has done for us, if we would list the times that God has led us with his right hand, he's led us through the valley of death. He's led us through the valleys of sorrow. He's led us through the valleys of failure. He's led us through the valleys when we've been backslidden and cold. He's led us through the times of difficulty. And we come to a time that God begins to act in a way that all of the world recognizes, hey, we need to give God our attention and see what's going on. Don't be as a foolish person that would say, God, what are you doing? You've interrupted my life. I'm glad for the day that he interrupted my life and gave me salvation. I'm glad for the day that he interrupted my will and gave me his will. So in this day of difficulty, I'm not going to judge God and say, God, you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to remember the years of his right hand. The psalmist made two decisions in this passage of Scripture. The first was to revive his memory of what God had done for him in the past. Now, I've said that already. But he made another decision. He said, I'm going to redirect my meditations. Not only am I going to revive my memory of God's goodness to me, I'm going to redirect my meditation. Rather than focus on the trouble, I'm going to focus on the goodness of God. Look at it, verse number 12. 
I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. The psalmist said, I was looking at the punishment. I was looking at the Babylonian army. I was looking at the devastation. I was looking at all the pain and all of the hurt. And I began to ask questions. Hey God, do you know what you're doing? Hey God, have you forgotten of us? Hey God, have your promises expired? And God didn't answer. And in my pondering and in my waiting, I remembered, well, God sure has been good to us. He made us a nation and he made us out of nothing. He brought us to prosperity. He gave us a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that we did not deserve, a land that we did not provide. God gave us all of that. What a fool I would be to question God's goodness now. I will revive my memory and I will redirect my meditations. You know, oftentimes when we have trouble in life, trouble in any good and godly relationship is because we focus on the negative and we forget the good. Sometimes in a marriage we will take advantage of the good. We will get frustrated at the bad or the things that we don't like or we not getting our way in us pouting and, 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 and just behaving as a child because of something that has not gone our way exactly, and we forget the goodness of the many years of marriage. We forget the blessings. One of the things and one of the practices I've had in working in marital counseling when a husband and wife are arguing with one another, I will say to her, I want you to tell me something good about your husband. I'll say to him, I want you to tell me a good quality about your wife. And it's, it's amazing to watch what happens. She'll say, well, he's a hard worker. It's amazing when they say something good, it's almost like the lights lighten up a bit and the darkness goes away. Now, I want you to tell me something good about her. Well, she's been faithful to me and takes care of the kids. I want you to tell me something good about him. Well, he's always paid our bills and I'm thankful for that. He really is a good guy. He just, just some things I don't like. Now, so you, you tell me something good about her. Well, she's always loved me and she's always supported me. Tell me something good about him. You know what? You and I can talk about the news. We can get discouraged, defeated to the place that we start questioning God. Let me ask you a question. Tell me something good about God. Tell me something good about God. Did he save your soul from hell? Did he forgive you of your sin? Did he take your name and write it in the Lamb's book of life? Did he overlook your times of faults and failures? When you were backslidden, was he faithful then? Let me ask you a question. When you came back to God in times of coldness, how long did it take you to get a hold of God? It didn't take you as long to get a hold of him as he took him to get a hold of you. Let's talk about God's goodness. And that's exactly what happens to the psalmist. He made two decisions. Then he realized two things. And I'm going to close with this. In verse number 13, he realized a secret. And I want you to get this statement. God's goodness and God's holiness work in strict harmony. God's goodness... And God's holiness work in strict harmony. Look at verse number 13. 
Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You see, my dad who provided and my mom who provided also had an expectation of a level of living. There are no bad words to be spoken in our house. If we said, shut up, or we said, stupid. In fact, I'd get a little nervous just to say it as an illustration. Boy, if my dad or my mom would have heard us say those words, we were in trouble. I mean, there, there was a law against those things, and their provision and their expectation worked in harmony. May I say tonight, God's provision and God's holiness, God's love and God's holiness, they work in strict harmony. You see, the trial that they were facing was from the same God that had blessed them. I want you to get this statement. God never punishes for pleasure. God always punishes for correction. He punishes us to get us back to the place where he can bless us again. I don't know if God is judging America. I can't tell you that. I do not know. But if God is judging America, he's not judging America for his pleasure. He's judging America for our good to bring us back to the place so he can provide for us again. You see, my dad would say it like this, as long as you live in my house, you'll live by my rules. As long as you eat at my table, you live by my rules. So the same hand that loved me was the same hand that expected obedience. And that's exactly what the psalm is saying. The psalmist is saying right here. And I realize the secret in understanding God is understanding that His goodness and His holiness, they work in strict harmony. He realized that secret. And then he realized a solution. I want you to look at this in verses 13 through 15. Who is so great a God is our God. Look at verse 14. Who art the God that dost wonders? Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph Selah. The answer is to keep in mind the goodness of God and not allow the difficulties to forget, cause us to forget that God made our nation what it was. God has made our life what it is. God has made our church what it is. It belongs to Him. God can do what He wants. The secret to joy in life is to realize the same hand that provides is the same hand that expects holiness. So what do I do in this time of difficulty? I remember his right hand of provision. And I make the decision that my meditations will not be on the difficulty, but will be on the goodness of God. Job told his wife, we've enjoyed the goodness of the Lord. I am not going to give up on God. God's been too good to me. God knows what he's doing. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. My wife is coming to the piano to play an invitation song tonight. What I preach tonight is not 
a practice or not something that we can just decide and do and it's a done deal. It's something that we must do again and again and again. As Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, he said, Bid me come unto thee. Jesus said, Come. When, Jesus put his, when, when Peter put his eyes on Jesus, he walked on the water. <coughs> when he got his eyes on the circumstances, he began to sink. So this week, it's difficult. The wind's blowing hard. The waves are crashing in our face. If we're not careful, all of our time will be spent looking at the waves and feeling the wind. I want to encourage you tonight, let's make a decision. I'm going to keep my eyes on the master of the sea.